all desire is transcendent by its very nature. Because if it wasn't desire for something that we feel that we lack or for a state of being that we desired, if it wasn't for something that we wanted but didn't have, it wouldn't be desire at all. In other words, desire is always for a different state of being than the one that we're already in. So there's something deeply spiritual about that at a metaphysical level. Have you ever wondered why you want the things that you want? Or have you ever felt like you were at the mercy of your desires, unable to steward the whims of your own wanting? What if our desires could be curated? My guest today is author and entrepreneur, Luke Burgess. Luke's book, Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life, draws from the teachings of French philosopher René Girard to give us a compelling look at how imitation and the modeling of desire influences what we yearn for. Luke argues that the future will be shaped by our desire, and he aims to show us how to desire a better one. You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this is season 11, episode 11, The Curation of Desire. Luke, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. It's an honor to have you on the show. It's an honor to be here, Stephen. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. You know, I was saying this to you before the show, and I want to repeat it here for our listeners as well. But, you know, I get a lot of books in the mail, and I read a lot of books on my own. But I don't always read every one of them cover to cover. And your book was not only one of the first books that I read in this year, but it's also one of the few books that I've read this year from cover to cover. And so to get to sit down with you and unpack some of the ideas that you're talking about is going to be super fun. I, I really appreciate that. And I'm the same way as you as a reader. So knowing that, I tried to keep a, some of the good stuff towards the end. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. A smidge of marketing there, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, your book is titled Wanting the power of mimetic desire in everyday life. And let's just start with the basics because this word mimetic may not be a familiar word to everyone. I mean, I know we're talking about imitation, but start here and talk to me about the power of mimetic desire and what does that mean to you? Mimetic is um, a variation on the word imitation. It comes from the Greek word mimistai. And the thinker that inspired my book, uh, René Girard, um, a Christian French man who came to the U.S. shortly after World War II and spent uh, the majority of his late career at Stanford, which is where he became well known, he coined this term mimetic desire because he had put his finger on an insight into human behavior and frankly human nature that nobody had ever done in quite the same way. So the fact that humans are imitative creatures was not a novel idea. Plato spoke a lot about it. Aristotle spoke a lot about it. Um, it was a hallmark of the Renaissance 
uh, and humanism, you know, imitating classical ideas and traditions. But Girard went a layer deeper than anybody had ever gone before. And he identified this feature of imitation. And he realized that humans actually imitate the desires of other people. So we're such insightful spiritual beings that we can intuit what other people want. And at the end of the day, I think desire is fundamentally something that's very uh, mysterious and in my opinion, very spiritual. So one way to think about this is that we're interrelational creatures that look beneath the surface of what other people say or do and intuit what it is that they want. And we imitate it. We're affected dramatically by the desires of other people, whether we know it or not, whether it's conscious or unconscious. And in Gerard's view, this was a fundamental driver of human behavior. This unconscious imitation of desires, usually unconscious, not always, mm -hmm. from the earliest of ages, from toddlers uh, imitating their, their mothers and what their mothers look at and desire, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and in family systems, what people, you know, what's modeled to us and the families that grew up in to when this whole thing goes completely haywire when we become adolescents and teenagers and don't know who's a model of desire and who's not. And he, he used the word mimetic desire rather than imitative desire to get at that mysterious, more hidden characteristic of this type of imitation. That's why he called it mimetic and believed it, it was a fundamental driver of, of human behavior. And this goes all the way back to the first pages of Genesis, mm -hmm. right? Where, you know, Eve didn't spontaneously get an idea to eat the forbidden fruit. Right. The, the very desire to do so was suggested to her by the serpent. So you could think of that very first desire as being an imitated or mimetic desire. Not a good one. <laughs> uh, and this kind of gets at the heart of what Gerard is, is getting at because he believes that it's this, he would even call it deviated transcendence, always sort of looking uh, to go beyond where we're currently at. And we often adopt desires as our own, whether they're good or bad, believing somehow that they're going to make us happy. And in a sense, that very first story of the fall at the very beginning of Genesis gets at the idea that mimetic desire in the negative manifestation, there, there are positive forms of mimetic desire, but the default mode of it is often a form of behavior that leads to conflict, to rivalry, and to unfulfilling desires. And that's the big idea that Gerard drew out throughout his entire body of work in which I talk about in my own book. It's so good. There, and there's so much in that, you know, it, just such a richness. And you even brought up the first part of Genesis. And I think that even following that story forward, even with Cain and Abel, you can see some of that conflict of desire playing out within human history, within human relationships. One question that I have as we're talking about desire and how it's modeled or how we, we pick up on the cues from our parents as, as young children and things like that. You know, I've often heard people say things like, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. It's almost like we have this idea that we have no control over our desires or that we're just subject to the whims of a particular desire. But 
I'd be curious from your perspective, do you think that our desire is something that we can curate, especially once we understand the mimetic nature of some of the desires we may have? Well, I absolutely do. Uh, the takeaway from the, this idea of mimetic desire should not be that we're mimetic creatures that are simply subject to the desires of other people around us. That's a very uh, deterministic way to think about it. And there are some people that do think of mimesis this way. And I, I sort of see this spirit of this kind of fatalistic uh, spirit permeate, permeating our culture right now when it comes to the algorithm and technology, right? as if everybody's just become very passive. And that's not at all what Gerard is saying, right? We have agency and we, we are absolutely can be shapers of our desires the more that we desire with intentionality. You know, we have hearts, we have wills, and we have an intellect. You know, we're rational creatures and we can grasp and perceive something that's good and true and beautiful, even if we don't want it. That's the that's the amazing thing, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Even if I don't want it, right? I mean, this has happened to me before in my life where I'm like, well, I know this thing is good, but I don't necessarily <laughs> want it yet. Yes. And it's a sign to me that my desires need to be cultivated or shaped or ordered in a way that corresponds to what I know to be the truth, right? Yes. So that is where the, the, this mystery of desire kind of comes full circle and uh, I believe that there's a teleology of desire, you know, that desire is we're aiming creatures and that our desire is pointing us towards something mm -hmm. good and true and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And deviated desire or this kind of deviated transcendence that I alluded to at the beginning of the conversation is, well, in Christian terms, it's the definition of sin, right? It's missing the mark, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of um, thinking that it's over here, right? And we need to go on the other side of the mountain and not necessarily, you know, in the, in, in the, the direction where we're pulled by these forces that I, I refer to as thin desires, bad models of desire can be very, can be very enticing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think like this is kind of the, the story of getting tied to the mast of the ship to avoid the sirens, right? right. I mean, it's kind of a, that's a, that's a story about this, these kind of false desires that lead to misery and, and ultimately to death. So if you think of this in terms of having a compass, a moral compass, on knowing what the truth is or, or, or striving to grasp it, and then thinking of desires as, as being ordered around that and, and these things working in conjunction, we have a much fuller picture of what Gerard is actually saying. You talk about in the book as well about what you called a hierarchy of values and that this hierarchy of values is perhaps what can help us to curate the desires rather than just being subject to the whims of every thin desire or every temptation or whatever it may be. Could you speak a little bit about this hierarchy of values and how that plays into this subject? Yeah, I, I, you know, this idea occurred to me when um, there's this big craze of every company is able to articulate their values, you know, but they always articulate them in a flat way as if they're all the same. And I realized that in my own life, I could rattle off the values that I believed I had, but there was no order to them. And at the end of the day, the values that at any given time, if you took a snapshot of my values, 
they would just be a product of whatever the most mimetic um, or even selfish kind of force operating in my life at any given time was. So as kind of like a, a you know a, a ship on a sea, just kind of buoyed about by the waves, and you know I just I adopted whatever values were convenient to me. Basically, it's mm-hmm. one way to say it, right? <laughs> yes. So you know I, I had uh, values. There's a very true story, right? Um, my faith is very important to me. Liturgy is important to me, and my friends are very important to me. And marriage is very important to me. And I there, there came a time when I had a friend who was having a bachelor party in Vegas on a Friday, and it happened to fall on the Friday before Easter and invited me to go. And is one of my best friends. And here, here I now have this collision of values. And if I don't have an idea of which one is, more, is ultimately um, more important, right, then I'm going to be completely confused and torn apart. I'm not going to know what to do. I'm going to go through all kinds of complex and weird emotions and feel guilt about letting my friend down and all of these things. When I went through the discernment of that, I mean, I I realized uh, very clearly after a short amount of time that I didn't have, um, I I didn't have a hierarchy of values, right? And it made that decision a little more complicated for me than it should be. There's all kinds of ways that I could celebrate my friend's marriage with them, but that was not one that I I ultimately was willing to to compromise on because that value, you know, Good Friday for me is is the the most solemn day of the year. There's certain things I'm not going to do on that day. So, you know, that was uh, very early in my life. That was one of those things that got me thinking about this. And then I sort of connected the dots to all kinds of other values. Just It was a real prick of my conscience and got me thinking about the way that I run my company, the way that I talk about values in my life. And like, what what is the order of my values? Do I even know? And if I don't know, how could anybody else know? Right? So it forced me to prioritize. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that is largely missing from our culture at at this juncture, we I don't see a lot of this discussion happening, whether in circles of faith or just in the general culture at large. There's not a hierarchy of values. There just seems to be, you know, more of a impulse. I would say, a hundred percent. And I think the the pandemic really revealed that there's not a clear hierarchy of values, mm-hmm. right? When there's all kinds of things that are valuable, right? I mean, uh, health and safety and well-being and protecting others is valuable. And then you have the dignity of human life. You have people that are um, you know, dying alone in hospitals where their families and friends can't come visit them. And it was as if there was mass confusion about like, well, how do we prioritize one thing or the other? And everybody wanted to absolutize you know, various values. And there wasn't any kind of consensus or agreement Mm -hmm. on what the hierarchy of values should be in our society or in our culture. And it was sort of everybody asserting their own and I think led to a lot of the problems that we saw during the pandemic. So I I think you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. You know, one aspect of mimetic desire that I'd love to hear you speak into is that when something is modeled to us at first, it may come with a particular shock value, especially if it's something that we haven't seen before in a particular way. But as we grow accustomed to this particular behavior or this particular way of doing things, the shock begins to wear off. And what was at one point something very shocking becomes something that's normalized or even assimilated into our own posture or our own way of thinking about things. And so I'm curious if that's something that you would have some insight on as well. Like when we're talking about 
desires being modeled to us by the culture or desires being modeled to us by the things around us, the things that we've become familiar with, you know, sometimes it begins as something shocking, but then over time we just assimilate it until it becomes normal. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, you know, the first thing I was thinking of as you were explaining that distinction, my mind immediately went to sort of negative desires that are modeled Mm-hmm. that we can become habituated to. So I, I'm thinking of my students. So I, one of the hats that I wear is as a university professor. And one of the ways that uh, we frame up this issue in class is around desires that in today's college culture are very strange and shocking to students. For instance, a young man who desires to be chased, Right. That is a strange and kind of shocking thing to model and can actually get him stigmatized in, in the crowd, right? And it's the kind of desires that I've seen spread um, and become less weird, both for him and for other people that are around him. I remember a couple of years ago, a young man came to me who was in a frat and wasn't happy with some of his behaviors and um, was was sort of looking to just live a different way. And uh, the changes that he had to made were uh, scandalous <laughs> to to some of his 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 frat mates and, and students. And they're not anymore, right? So, I mean, that, that that's for me at least. That's an example of of how it's always desires that are modeled to us can always appear a bit foreign to us the first time we see them on the positive side or on the negative side. And one of the definitions of, of, of a virtue is that it becomes less weird and strange and foreign and difficult to exercise the, the, the more that you do it. It just, it becomes, there's a co-naturality that develops. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I think in the positive sense, that, that's, that's what I would um, think of. And I think we need more examples of those positive models of desire, this kind of transcendent leadership where somebody is choosing to model something that's a little outside of the the existing paradigm. And that's true leadership to me. And it's amazing how quickly many people, at least that my students are almost yearning to see people modeling those desires that they might secretly want, but they don't know. They think they're completely alone. They don't think that anybody else has the same struggles that they have, that anybody else wants the same things. And they just kind of accept the status quo. So I think you're absolutely right. I think you can go both ways. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting what you're saying as well as, as we think, well, I'm the only one that feels this way, or I'm the only one that thinks this way. And you know, the, the stereotype, especially for the artist, tends to be just that, that, you know, I'm the, I'm the misunderstood artist, or I have these desires or these inclinations or, you know, these proclivities that other people don't get. But it sounds like what you're saying is that we can tend to be less individualistic in our desires than we think we are. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as as a creator and as an artist, you know, I've I've had to learn to laugh at myself, really, really, um, and just be honest about who some of my models are. And mm-hmm. uh, I find that, you know, as I do that, I mean, even this book that I wrote, I mean, there there were there were definite models along the way, yeah, um, that were kind of cobbled together. And oddly, you know, it sort of does result in something new at the end. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like in the end, of course, you end up becoming yourself, right? Yes. It was like a, a phrase from David Foster Wallace where it's almost like we just sort of accept 
that we need models of desire. We, we are, we, we do need things to imitate. And in the process of doing that, uh, some kind of a naturalness or style actually emerges out of that. Yes. That's something that I've long been fascinated with, particularly coming at it from the creative angle, is that, you know, especially emerging artists, imitation is a really helpful thing. Imitation helps you understand the fundamentals. It can it can help you not have to reinvent the wheel each time that you come to create something. But over time, as we mature as artists, we have to either assimilate some of those influences into our work and understand what it is about those things that it's reflecting about ourselves. And I know that uh, maybe that's something you could speak into as well about the reflective nature of desire is that sometimes, you know, we're influenced by another thinker or another artist because there's something about them that resonates or that is is similar to our own you know viewpoint on life and i've been studying in my own life for a long time now this space between originality and likeness or this space between individuality and the need to belong and so it seems like your work with desire and the mimetic nature of desire really plays into that but Hmm. i know for me early on i was like no, I'm not influenced by this this other musician. I mean, it's just so coincidental that my songs <laughs> happen to sound a little bit too much like theirs. But then, like you're saying, eventually we can begin to to mature in that way and, and own our influences. Yeah, the liminal space between, I think, as you said it, you know, the individual and the group is a fascinating place to just stay and, and, and sit there for a while and to explore. And, you know, it's the space where just amazing things can happen. And, you know, great art is created in that tension. You know, I, I, I believe that tension is, is almost always a really good thing. If you don't try to escape it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and flee from it. Um, I, I, you know, transcendence is, is, I associate that word with something that we're moving towards and escaping is something that we're fleeing from without any clear destination necessarily. Yeah. And one of the images of the liminal state that has fascinated me for the last year is the parable of the lost sheep where you have an, you have, you have one sheep leaving a group. So you have the one and you have the 99 and we're not, we're not really told about what happens to that sheep when it's lost. And I've often thought about, well, how is that sheep different when it comes back to the group after having been lost? And we're all lost. We, we all, you know, are in the liminal state where we don't feel like we're really part of any group. You know, we feel like we're different. Um, the tension between the individual and the group is fascinating, right? Cause like we need others. We're social creatures. There's no real freedom in my opinion, without communion yet. We also need to become ourselves and become full people within a group without becoming lost in it. That's good. And that, that is the fundamental sort of mystery. How do I become the fullness of myself while not asserting 
some kind of a false autonomy or individuality that I don't have. Also recognizing the, the beauty of the group. I was in seminary with, I lived with 250 other men for three years. <laughs> so I've thought about this question a lot, right? And we all had the same structure, the same rituals every single day. And there was some pressure to conform yet. It also happened to produce um, dramatically different people at the same time. And there's a, there's a mystery and, and kind of a, a beauty in that process. Yes. Wow. I don't know if I could have handled that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it, I've often talked about it in terms of there's a difference between individuality and individualism, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that individuality is the beauty of our uniqueness in relationship to the community or in communion with mm -hmm. others, whereas individualism tends to lord itself at the expense of others is kind of the way that I've thought about it. You know? Yeah. Yep. Well, there's a section in your book that I'd love to talk about, and this gets us headed toward the transcendence that we're talking about on this season of the podcast, and we've mentioned it a few times in our conversation. But it's a section that you called the misappropriation of wonder. And I love that term. That's an intriguing term in and of itself, which you could kind of unpack that for us. But in this section, you talk about metaphysical desire, you know, going beyond material desire or, you know, just more basic desires. And you begin to talk about metaphysical desire. And I love this, this passage here. You said, people are always in search of something that goes beyond the material world. If someone falls under the influence of a model who mediates the desire for a handbag, it's not the handbag they're after, it's the imagined newness of being they think it will bring. Desire is not of this world, Gerardus said. It is in order to penetrate into another world that one desires. It is in order to be initiated into a radically foreign existence. That passage just blows me away, man, but I'd, I'd love to hear you speak into that a bit. Yeah, so all desire is, desire is transcendent by its very nature, to tie it into the theme of this season. Because if it wasn't desire for something that we feel that we lack or for a state of being that we desired if it wasn't for something that we wanted but didn't have it wouldn't be desire at all in other words desire is always for a different state of being than the one that we're already in right mm -hmm. and that's what gerard is getting at so there's something deeply spiritual about that at a metaphysical level right mm -hmm. so you know it's a desire for the fullness of being and that can that's a wonderful thing because desire is almost always pointing us beyond where we're currently at and that could be good we know that there's always more right there's always more you can never like say i'm a perfect lover right I, I now love perfectly right there's always more right there so that can lead to problems when the being that we're looking for um you know, comes from the person with the nice handbag that has it. And we, we think that somehow they possess some quality of being that we don't. And, you know, we, we search for it in all kinds of deviated ways. But desire as transcendence, there's the kind of good transcendence, 
And at the deepest level, it's sort of transcending the prison of ourselves and our own ego and the kind of desire that allows us to be in communion with other people, um, to be in communion with God, right? I mean, this is a very spiritual sort of, mm -hmm. everything about this is, is very spiritual. Uh, or there's the kind of false transcendence that in fact does not help us to transcend the, the ego or the, 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 the prison of ourselves transcendence that can actually indeed be very selfish. And this is, <laughs> this is like one of the key differentiators. When I think of transcendence, I think of, am I actually like growing in love and am I more other focused? Am I, am, am I in relationship with others in a, in a better way or, or not? And I think that's, that's what Gerard is getting at is this sort of transcend this metaphysical journey that desire is constantly, you know, beckoning us on, which um, from a Christian perspective ends in communion with God and the kingdom of God. But I think everybody is looking for transcendence, whether they know it or not. And we can achieve that with consumerism. We can achieve that in all kinds of ways that ultimately are not going to lead to happiness. So good. You know, I've been talking a lot on the podcast this season about the differentiation between transcendence and escapism. And I think that reminds me of what you're saying is that sometimes what we think is transcendence is really some form of escapism. You know, it's a, it's a pulling away from rather than a moving toward. One thing I'd be curious to hear you speak into is, you know, the desires prevalent in our modern culture, whether they're materialistic desires or, you know, consumeristic desires, selfish desires, whatever it is we're kind of seeing modeled to us in this time, it almost feels like we've lost sight of these larger, thicker desires, as you call them, you know, some of the metaphysical, more universal desires, but yet even losing sight of the desire behind the desire, so to speak, it doesn't take away that yearning. And even if we think that our desires are, are simply for the material or even the sexual or for the pleasure or whatever it may be, there's still, a, a I would say, a spiritual desire functioning behind that. And so even when you talk about the distortion of wonder, you know, I, I wonder if some of that may be what you're getting at. Yeah. Because we always are, the, the kinds of models of desire that attract us always evoke some kind of a wonder in us because they appear, they're other in some way, right? There's some, there's some sense of otherness about them. Uh, for instance, a social media influencer that has a million followers, their lifestyle is, is definitely, um, you, you know, we, you wonder at it, right? Like many young people wonder they're, they're sort of, they, they, they have achieved something, right? And you sort of like sit there and daydream. Well, what, I wonder what their life must be like, you know, like how, how nice it must be. You only have to work a few hours a day. And <laughs> so, you know, that, that wonder is, I would call that sort of misappropriated wonder. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's wonder that provokes anxiety and insecurities, um, all kinds of things and perhaps distracts from 
the kind of wonder that could be stirred up in, in other ways, the kind of wonder that is enduring, right? From walking into one of the most beautiful architectural wonders of, of the world and, and sort of, you know, being taken up by it and sort of like looking up at it. And that, uh, and I've, I've experienced that loss of wonder for those things that I would call these kind of thick experiences and thick desires when I've been so preoccupied with wondering about some of the thin ones. I mean, I've lived in Italy, and I've, I've been in beautiful places and had my head buried in my phone because I'm wondering about some kind of a discourse that's going on about some topic in the news that I won't even care about a week from today or a week mm-hmm. from that point, right? And in a sense, you know, my, my, that is wonder that's driving me, but it's, it's, it's wonder that doesn't hold a lot of promise for, you know, to, to hold my attention and to draw me towards something that'll be truly fulfilling. So there are a lot of these desires, which I, I refer to as thin desires, which I do think are these highly um, mimetic desires that there's no solidity or real substance there. They're, they're just, mm-hmm. they're very fleeting and they can make us forget the thick ones that we do have, mm-hmm. the ones for the true, the good and the beautiful. Yes. We almost need to excavate the thin ones and to, to unearth the thick ones, to remind ourselves that we have them and, and what they are. And that's a process that took me a long, a long time to go through. Um, sometimes suffering strips us of, of our thin desires, right? It reminds us of what's really important because we don't have time that's right. to, to, to worry about some of the thin ones. And that's where I've learned to be grateful for some of the, the suffering that I've had to endure, which reminded me of the thick desires that I do have. Yes, uh, that's really good. Well, You have a section in the book where you talk specifically about modeling a new mindset and and what you're talking about now kind of leads me into that section. But how do we model new desires or how do we model new mindsets, even in a culture perhaps that thinks it already knows? I'll speak from a faith standpoint, you know, a culture that thinks it already knows what the faith is about or what a particular lifestyle is about? How do we model new desires or how do we model this new mindset in, in the midst of the culture we live in today? I think that the one of the fundamental problems with the culture that we live in, and particularly the um, kind of obsession with uh, technology and innovation, which by the way, I think is a very good thing, right? I mean, I am an entrepreneur uh, at heart and um, I love technology. But I, I think that innovation without conversion is doesn't lead anywhere. In fact, it can lead, um, it can lead to um, a loss of humanity. So when it comes to new desires, I think there needs to be uh, some level of radical conversion that has to take place. And it's all conversion is is fundamentally a conversion of desire. And when I use the word conversion, I don't. I don't only mean in a religious sense or the sense of metanoia. I just mean like a conversion at, at the level of the creature where our desires are actually being transformed, purified. You know, we're, we're confronting ourselves and being honest with ourselves. And that's, that's, and of course I also mean conversion in the religious sense. And when Paul in the 12th letter of the Romans says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. That's actually that was the inspiration for that whole discussion in the book. What does he mean by that? And he actually uses a word for 
um, not being conformed to the patterns of the world. He uses a word in Greek is basically schema, scheme. So in other words, there's no external pattern. There's no external model out there that will ever ultimately be something to conform yourselves to. What's needed is kind of, I would call it an interior metamorphosis. He uses the Greek word metamorphosis to contrast it to the kind of patterning ourselves towards external models versus a kind of metamorphosis or transformation or conversion at the level of the creature where we do become essentially a new creation or a new being, right? So for, for an artist, this is really important, yes. right? I said like the problem with innovation is that there's no conversion and we need conversion in order for the innovation to be fruitful. I think the same thing is true of, of artists, right? There needs to be a deepening coming to grips with reality and who we are and the truth. And in fact, Gerard's, uh, the very first time that he talks about the transformation of desire, he's talking about artists. He's talking about writers. And he says that the reason that Dostoevsky or Stendhal or Flaubert or Cervantes, the reason that they've written the great works that they have is because they've underwent some kind of interior transformation and if you look at their early work in comparison to their late work, you can see it. You can kind of see, you know, at some point in their lives, they read some of the early drafts, manuscripts, and books. And were like, wow, this thing is full of my own pride, right? This thing is full of my own rivalries with other people <laughs> in the world. And then in the later work, there's much more um, complexity and depth and layers and nuance. And Gerard says, well, that's actually the result of this process of, of, he calls it novelistic conversion. I think we could call it artistic conversion or something like that, mm. but it's real, whatever it is. Yes. And I'm sure that part of that conversion process involved a lot of the suffering that we were just talking about earlier. There's something about going down to those depths that really boils the truth or brings the truth to the surface, you know? Yeah, I mean, and there's the old kind of trope of, you know, the suffering artist, right? Who's, you know, and, and but there's truth to that, right? There is, mm -hmm. there is truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of great, a lot of superficiality is stripped away in those moments. And yeah. if, if we put, you know, we put the pen to the paper or, or create music or whatever kind of artist you are, uh, it's an opportunity, really, yes. to, to communicate yes. a beautiful message. Well, as we bring our conversation to a close, I want to make sure that we give some time. I'd love to talk with you about this chapter, Transcendent Leadership, How Great Leaders Inspire and Shape Desire. And you talk about imminent desire in this chapter as well as transcendent desire. And of course, we won't have time to go through all five of these, but I want to recommend that our listeners grab the book and read this for yourself. But you talk about five skills that we can cultivate which is shifting gravity, the speed of truth, discernment, sitting quietly in a room and filtering feedback. But I'd love to talk about this, your ideas of what transcendent leadership is. And again, speaking from the paradigm of, art, of an artist uh, to artists, you know, I've often said that we have the opportunity to be the architects of hope for our generation. And that's something that I aspire to be in my own life, you know, and I'd, I'd love to hear you just speak into this transcendent leadership and uh, tell our listeners some of the ideas that you're talking about in this chapter. Sure. So, you know, I, I, I think that transcendent is at the heart of what it means to be an entrepreneur and an artist both, because we, we always 
we want to create things that's in some way transcend the existing sort of paradigm, right? That's out there. Yes. Um, or else yes. we're, it's just kind of incremental. And, you know, it's not that we're not creating something new, but it doesn't necessarily move the needle and get people thinking more magnanimously. It doesn't necessarily inspire hope. I think that people are looking, it seems like we're stuck. I mean, it, it, there, there's something about the culture where it seems like, we're kind of, uh, and there's like a wheel is turning and imminent desire is desire that takes all of its models from what's already inside of the, of the existing system. Right. So everybody's, you know, there's this trend. I need to get on the trend and I need to do it better than everybody else. Right. Whereas a, a transcendent leader or somebody who has a transcendent framework has some kind of a model that is simply is outside of the system in some way. Yes. And that allows a, just a different reference point, right? So that, you know, the, the, it's almost like there's a different center of gravity that's kind of, you know, pulling us out towards something. We might not even n completely know what it is yet, right? Mm -hmm. But we're sort of saying yes to this tug and, and following um, I mean, following the spirit towards something that is other outside of this paradigm that we know. And this involves um, faith, not just in the, in the religious sense of the word, but just kind of stepping out and saying yes, without having to have all of the answers, right? Mm -hmm. And we live in this highly like calculating culture where we need to have like understand, have the whole roadmap laid out in front of us. And part of the, this quest for transcendence is we're, we're not always going to see the end of the journey. You know, um, you know, we, we sort of set out, we go out into a, a new place and we, we, we are in that liminal space that we talked about. So, you know, in, in organizations, right. The, the kind of leader that, that has or kind of organization where all of the models are imminent, it just sort of is a, it's a self-licking ice cream cone, right? Like everything just kind of, uh, it, every, everything is self-referential. It's sort of inside the system and there's no model outside of the system. Like one of the beautiful examples of transcendent leadership that I've found in the last couple of years is I went to a, um, a little, uh, school in, in LA. Um, in a very, very poor neighborhood. And they, um, the school, the principal told me that, you know, we, we want to help these young students to escape the cycle of poverty and, and to thrive and to create, to be able to start families and to thrive. And I, if I'm doing my job, I hope that this school in its current form does not exist in 20 years. Right. Because the whole point right now is that we exist to serve these these very, very poor families. And I don't I'm, I don't want to perpetuate that cycle. Right. If he was operating from a mode of self-preservation, then he wouldn't think like that. Right. Yeah. So there was creative That's destruction right. built into the, the, his very business model, which can be I don't know a lot of leaders that think like that. Right. So good. They, yeah. they actually need to step out and, and go to a place where they don't know what things are going to look like 15 or 20 years in the future. Yes. Creative destruction. Come on. What a phrase. <laughs> well, I'd love to end this time with a quote from your book that I think speaks into even, you know, what you're talking about now. And, and you say in the book, there's a different kind of leadership characterized by transcendent desire. Transcendent leaders have models of desire outside the systems they are in. 
The greatest writers and artists in history were driven by them, and that's why their works are timeless. They were not confined to the popular desires of their age. I read that, and I just remember throwing my pencil down and saying, yes, that is it. They were not confined to the popular desires of their age. So beautiful, my friend. Thank you. Well, it does. It opens up a world of possibility, you know, and a greater scope of movement and imagination, right? Mm -hmm. When we step back and just take that big view of humanity and all of history and don't, you know, very often we, we just can be very myopic and, you know, we can become products of our time. And I don't think any artist would ever want somebody writing about them, you know, a century from now <laughs> saying that they're just a, a product of their age, right? Um, right? So there's something tremendously kind of freeing about um, knowing that our models of desire can come from anywhere, anytime, any place, from unexpected places and from unexpected people. Right? They're not always who we think that they are and they're definitely not always the models that our culture holds up for us and says should be models. They can be people that nobody knows about. Right. I mean, some of the some of the models of desire in my life are people that I think are hidden saints that nobody will ever uh, their, their name will never be in the news. Right. And uh, the world becomes a bit more mystical and magical um, when we go through life, knowing that this the transcendent can break in at any moment. And every encounter is one of those possibilities to find somebody that might change our lives forever. In a, in a, it could be an encounter at a gas station, for all we know. And, and living that way, um, every moment is an opportunity for artistic inspiration. So beautiful. Luke, thank you so much for spending this time with me on the Makers and Mystics podcast today. I'll be sure to put a link in the show notes of this episode so folks can connect with you, get their hands on a copy of your book, and uh, really appreciate the work you're doing. And thanks so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to Luke's book and to join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. As a patron of the podcast, you can enjoy additional interview segments, including one with Luke on practical steps for shaping your desires. As always, my friends, I'm grateful to be on this creative journey with you. I'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.